Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I had a moment of pure panic. Um, And by pure panic, I don't just mean like a single flashing moment of it, but I was panicking for like 45 minutes or so. Um, Now, the background of this is I was laying on the couch doing my reading, as I always do every Monday, uh, and my phone is on silent because I don't like to get distracted by it. And as I was cooking my lunch, I see that I got a uh, missed phone call from one of my advisors. Very scary. Why is he calling me? Why doesn't he send me an email? What could it possibly be? And then I check my voicemail, um, because he leaves a voicemail because, you know, I don't know why the universe wanted me to to melt into the earth or something. I check my voicemail, like it's 1996, and there is a very terse message from my advisor. And he says, hello, call me back. We need to talk about your orals committee. Oh, God, my skeleton just about jumped out of my skin. It was a very, very uncomfortable feeling because as soon as I listened to that, as soon as I heard that going through my head was every single possibility of what could go wrong. Did one of my advisors get pissed off at me because I wasn't communicating enough because my heads have been really, really down reading every day? Was there a dis, you know, disagreement between my advisors? Did this advisor just want to drop out of my committee because he suddenly decided that I was a crappy scholar? All of these things were going through my head, and I just didn't know what could be the problem. Turns out it was a very minor thing to do with scheduling, which I found out 45 minutes later when I finally got in touch with my advisor and we talked about it. But it was horrifying. It was really horrifying. And why do I tell this story? Well, it's just because reading for these exams is really hard. It's boring and tough to read this many books every single day, and it takes energy to synthesize them into something that makes sense. But there's also a lot of work that I have to do around my ego, around how I'm seeing this exam as something in my personal life. It is the biggest bugbear of my life. It is my nightmare. It is the thing that I live with every single day, which is crazy when you think that it's probably going to be less than two hours long. Anyway, one of the strange things about doing a podcast is that you can watch yourself change as you do more reading, as you think a little bit more, as you know your horizons open up. Uh, Maybe not even just changing particular beliefs, but changing perspectives, seeing that other perspectives are out there. And, I mean, this is really cool, and it's also really kind of terrifying, um, because you can see where you go wrong. And last Friday, I recorded a podcast where I made the argument that there's a connection between life in the anonymous big cities that most of us live in today and the sociological concept of modernity. So the modern age is the age in which people are more or less city dwellers and have these particular kind of city dweller characteristics. The things that I pointed out is very important about this is that modern city dwellers have to find ways of judging and trusting anonymous strangers. They have to be uh, comfortable with being judged themselves 
And this adds up to a kind of tension between being constantly public and constantly anonymous, constantly lonely and yet constantly at home, constantly changing and yet always being pinned by the same kinds of structures that you find all around yourself. And I looked at this through going through a bunch of objects and spaces that I argued showed the advance of modernity, coffee houses, clubs, these kind of things. But as I was thinking about it later, I forgot something really big, and that's women. So there's a couple of problems with the uh, narrative that I gave on Friday. It ignored that women had different experiences of life in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so if we think of modernity as something that's coming from objects and spaces like I do, women have a different kind of modernity if they have a modernity at all. And it also ignored how the concept of modernity that I offered was gendered. I don't think that I mentioned once in that podcast that the modernity that I was talking about was open only to men. I will probably said people. Just this kind of vague and anonymous figure who just happens to be a man. So in this episode, I'm going to try to correct that and put gender back into the story of modernity and see what kind of ideas we get if we remember that simple injunction that it seems so hard to remember sometimes that women exist and have a history and are important. So I'm going to talk about three things. First, how being excluded from this kind of masculine modernity affected women. The second, how women were always present in this kind of masculine modernity. And third, how there are other spaces that we can understand female modernity being generated in. So let's talk about First, the practical effects. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that my account of kind of an airy, abstract concept like modernity excluded women? Well, first, it's pretty obvious that when big, gigantic master metaphors like modernity and rationality and democracy do not include some people, then that means that those people who are excluded are also excluded from important institutions of social life. So if women are not considered rational, if they're not considered fit for public life, if they're considered like they were in the 19th century to be mostly creatures of home and habit and every day, then they will be excluded from the public, from the places that modernity takes its root. But let's not make too much of this. There was, of course, subjugation long before modernity and subjugation long after modernity. Women were treated crappily, even in the halcyon days of traditional merry old England, where everybody danced around the maypole and lords were nice and workers were defer you know, had deference. There was still subjugation there. Not only was there wife selling and uh, wife beating and lack of education for women, but it also seems clear that the economic work that women did, far be it from it being valued, as some people like Deborah Valencia, 
was undervalued, and when it became something that you could generate profit from, was often moved into by organizations of men. Quick example of this is brewing. Back in the, you know, before the 16th century, brewing was something that was mostly done locally by women. But with new brewing methods brought over from the Netherlands in the 16th century, brewing became a highly capitalized, highly profitable activity that was done by men. So, let's look, though, at a more practical, though hidden, effect of women being excluded from the definition of modernity. So, in my portrayal of what modernity is, participation in the public is important because it lets people see themselves in new ways and lets people do new kinds of things. So if being a modern person is being in an anonymous city where you have to rely on strangers for trust, people have to learn explicit ways of cooperating with strangers, and so they pick up on what I call technologies of cooperation and organization. People learn how to be polite and how to make clubs and how to have membership lists and, you know, how to market things and make newspaper ads and run a meeting. Also, this creates broad social networks, which we can imagine as creating social and cultural capital. Our flexible, anonymous, club-going male urbanite is meeting with a ton of people and talking with them and establishing very broad and rich social contacts. This, in turn, spreads knowledge and ideas throughout these social networks. Finally, this kind of modern urban social life gives individual fun and freedom. It lets individuals choose from a vast menagerie of activities and people and livelihoods and self-conceptions. It's like that thing that, that Ernest Hemingway described Paris as, a movable feast, a place that always is rich and overflowing with ideas and you know, objects and food and wine and dancing and experience, and yet is unmoored, unstable, always changing. So if women are barred from that, or for the most part barred from that, or not allowed the same flexibility, there are practical results. Women in the 18th and 19th century largely socialized at home or in certain kinds of restrained public spaces like the theater or like uh, pleasure gardens or lending libraries or some social clubs. And this means practically that women had more constrained and smaller social networks to call upon. And this had a practical effect. If we want to explain why women women's work was undervalued, why there were no female brewers, why uh, there were no female unions, why domestic servants were universally, you know, considered denigrated and were one of the hugest categories of employment in Britain, and yet there was never any, any hint of unionizing them. We can explain this failure through explaining the fact that women, by and large, had less social capital, they had smaller networks, they had fewer ways of connecting their personal ideas and frustrations and experiences with the ideas and frustrations and experiences of others. Now secondly, I just want to point out how even though 
on my Friday episode ignored women. Women were there in those same spaces. It wasn't like, you know, these modern spaces and objects were, you know, completely hermetically sealed off from all women. No, they were there, they were just by and large ignored or treated as remainders or oddities or outliers. Um, So, of course, the basic, you know, and most obvious thing about this is that women were always present because they did so much of the domestic labor that kept people fed and clothed and watered and clean. Um, So we can't imagine, you know, a person walking down the street in their nice uh, suit of clothes with their cane and their top hat. Notice how I said person. I'm still failing to gender this modern person. Imagine the modern man walking down the 19th century street. His clothes are washed, sewn, and bought often by women. He has food in his belly, often cooked by women, and he will go to a house or an office that is often kept by women. But I feel like we've talked about this a bit in previous episodes, so I want to move on to something more important, which is the idea that there were spaces of female modernity too, spaces of modernity that were open to women as well. But if we tell this story, it kind of changes a little bit the periodization of what we're talking about. It changes the beginning of the process of modernization, and it changes the sort of objects and spaces and ideas that we pay attention to. So let's think of some of the ways in which this kind of modern flexible self happen for women in the 18th and 19th centuries, and we're going to have to push it into the 20th century as well. Well, there's a bunch of spaces that we can consider modern that were open to women and were actually really, really vibrant. One is something I'm going to call an invisible social network. Now, a good example of these are magazines. If you're interested in something, you subscribe to a magazine and it comes to your house regularly. By reading this magazine, you can participate in a particular kind of specialized interest. You can even talk back to the magazine by writing a letter to the editor, which back in the 19th century was often responded to. You were part of a community of magazine readers. Now, how did you choose that magazine? Well, it was your individual choice. And the same way that we might be able to identify a particular kind of individuality through these overlapping social circles in the anonymous city, so too can we identify a particular kind of individuality intersecting by these invisible networks of choice and interest. So you might be a person who's interested in particular kinds of magazines or particular kinds of hobbies. There's also other invisible social networks knit together by exchanges of letters, by novels, by poetry, by all of these things that are happening in ways that we might call, well, virtual. I should have called them virtual networks. That would have been a much sexier phrase. But these, importantly, were site nonspecific. They could happen wherever. You could be a member of these invisible networks even if you did your consumption and participation of them at home. And so they were open to women and many of them became gendered. Another space that we can think of as being a part of female modernity is the parlor. 
Now, when we think of this separate spheres ideology, we think of men out in public being kind of, you know, polite and 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 sometimes hypocritical and, you know, struggling to make money and then coming home to this warm and sealed up domestic interior that is cozy and looked over by the beautiful angel of the house. There's no strangers in that house. But in the real houses of the 19th century, there were plenty of strangers. First, you know, let's admit that in the 19th century, most people living in London lived not in a single family house, which was the ideal, but rather in a tenement, which was a big house that had been divided up into a number of rooms, or they lived with lodgers or as a lodger. But even if we take this ideal kind of house, there's still a lot of strangers coming in. First, of course, are the invisible strangers, those servants and domestics and charwomen and cleaners and deliverers and tradesmen who actually make everything run on time. But there's also social visitors. And here we get a site of modernity that is entirely different from those other ones. It is the parlor. The parlor was a place in the house that was open to strangers, and it was often the most public-facing and, you know, fussily decorated and over-the-top room of the house. If you were going to receive people in the 19th century house, you would receive them in the parlor. And of course, the parlor was open to women and men alike, and in the parlor, you could have a kind of discussion based around these things that we take to be modern. You could talk about magazines and newspapers and books. You could play piano. You could discuss art. You could talk about whatever you wanted to in the parlor. So the parlor we might think about as an alternative space of modernity, an alternative space in which a person can work and talk and form themselves. Another alternative space of modernity is entirely unsexy and, and you know, bear with me. It is the suburb. So starting in the 19th century, people started to move out of the city and into kind of like pseudo city housing where they got more room to live, but lived farther away from their work. And this is the rise of the suburb. And we might take the suburb to be, you know, this phenomenon of everyday boredom and cookie cutter houses and uh, domestic housewives slaving away over hot stoves alone, you know, sentenced to not live out in the exciting city. And that's true. But the suburbs also gave a lot of people new control over their environments. A lot of women new control over the environments. The increase in size of housing available and the increase in new kinds of consumer goods that let people clean and customize their houses provided women in their role as, you know, domestic goddesses, massive amounts of control and opportunities for self-invention. I don't just mean this in a bullshit way. One of the biggest things that is important for the lives of women in the late 19th century is the development of a bunch of labor-saving technology around the home. First, this means that people can deal with fewer servants, which means that there's a lot of women who no longer have to slave away in households for every day. But 
It also means that there's just a lot less work that women need to do. And these labor-saving devices are still parts of our lives today. We're talking about vacuum cleaners, washing machines, refrigerators, electric irons, cast iron stoves and ranges, piped waters, bathrooms and indoor toilets, cinema and radio, and super important, the central heating of water. The development of all of these labor-saving devices meant that the home became a lot less oppressive and a lot more comfortable for the people who lived in it. Just imagine how many chores that you needed to do before you had a vacuum cleaner and a washing machine and a dishwasher. Saving that effort let women have a lot more freedom in their day-to-day -day lives. And so in these spaces of, of invisible networks and parlors and suburbs, we can imagine there being an alternative cast of modernity, one that is still flexible, one that is still about individual freedom, one that's still about negotiating the space between market and individuality, one that is still troubled by uh, uh, the constant remaking and remaking of oneself and one's position in, in, in capitalism. But... It's not focused on the city, instead it's focused on the home. And because of that, it's open to women and children. Also note that because of that, the time period of this shifts, maybe about by about a hundred years. My story of modernity, of you know, these men hanging out in social clubs, begins really in 1690. And you can really say that a decent chunk of London is modern in the way that I think it's modern in like 1750 while well, a decent chunk of male London. If we want to take women, we have to wait until maybe the 1890s, maybe even the 1910s, before we can say that a decent chunk of women get to experience this kind of self-fashioning of modernity. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope uh, further to have more of these experiences where I realize that I'm wrong and get to correct myself. It's really interesting to kind of look back over my previous thinking and, you know, improve it. Um, thanks very much to Duncan Barton uh, for making the image for our podcast. Thanks very much for Jonathan Lear for making the music. If you liked the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on social media. And uh, over the past couple days, a couple of you guys have actually reached out and told me that you're listening and uh, told me about how you like the show. It's really great to hear. I can get really lonely doing this, and uh, those compliments really do keep me going. Um, I will see you guys tomorrow. I think we're going to be talking about the East India Company. Bye.